Hello, and welcome to Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hello. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that really fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. and very thankful to have you join us on this episode of 2019's Midsommar. And what a perfect time to be releasing this episode of Midsommar, right in midwinter. No, stop it, no. <laughs> okay, so you had told me that you wanted to make the joke, not that you were going to make it with that horrible accent. That was the worst thing ever. And delightful, but thank you. It's now done, and we can move beyond this moment. Um... I had to do it. I had to. You did. You did. And that's okay. Um, That's not our only deviation, beginning with a terrible joke. Um, This episode is also going to deviate a little bit, because usually we try to focus either on films that really worked for the majority of either critics or audience, but for us we had a real sort of issue with, Mm -hmm. or films that shouldn't work and don't for lots of people, but really for us we're just like sort of our like, yes, here it is. Filled with happiness angels sing. Exactly. But our discussion on Midsommar is going to be very different. Uh, quite, quite different than, than normal. Midsommar is undoubtedly a film that has divided people. It's a very polarizing film, as Ari Aster tends to be. But it's also a film that kind of divided us a little bit. Oh, it is very true. It's very, very true. I, not to, like, tease our hand too much, but, uh, I quite liked this film. And I did too, but I really disagree with why Anthony likes it. Um, and, and I don't think that Anthony is in total agreement with my thoughts on the film either. So get ready for an episode where we just scream at each other for 35 minutes straight. Yay, and then realize that we've been agreeing in our <laughs> disagreement all along. Now, before we go all Hulk on each other, uh, I think we should probably start from a place of intelligent thoughts. Yeah, that's a good idea. And and the, so for the framework for today, I chose it because I think it speaks to, again, not to, not to like overly tease our hand, but it speaks to what is, I think, one of our primary points of disagreement about this film. And that is going back to just the, the fundamental basics of generic classification. And that this is, what we're talking about is genre classification exactly. here. And... You know, I feel very, as a genre scholar, I obviously have to believe in genres. Um, because it's true. It would be pretty weird if you were a genre scholar, and but you your whole thing was you didn't believe that genre studies were worthwhile at all. Yeah, that'd be terrible, actually. Uh, but I am conflicted. And I'm, and I'm conflicted in part because I teach classes like science fiction, where we end up deconstructing the, the genre over the course of a semester. Um, and I'm conflicted because, specifically with the horror genre, it can be really tricky to build up that classification and definition, in part because if you go to like just the most basic of fundamental film texts, so we're talking about like the sort of seminal film studies book, Film Art, an introduction um, by Thompson and Boardwell, they define horror as, and this is this is super problematic, 
um, that it is most recognizable by the emotional effect it tries to arouse. Mm -hmm. The horror film aims to shock, disgust, repel. And here's where it gets a little dark. Mm -hmm. In short, to horrify. Oh, okay. So I guess now it's all cleared up. Horror films are films that horrify. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's 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 awful, right? <laughs> I mean, like, talk yeah. about the ultimate circular logic. And the problem with this, right, is that I've actually had discussions before with people who would say things like, but if it's about how it makes us feel, wouldn't something like Sophie's Choice be a horror film because it's, quote, horrifying us yeah, with the realities of... All films about Nazis would be horror films. Exactly. Anything to do with, like, human testing horror film. Exactly. And and so suddenly all of these like just sort of traditional dramas by this weird sort of circular logic might possibly be horror, but also then like if a film doesn't horrify you, um does that mean that it's not horror? And so then films like Twilight, which oftentimes get discussed and in some ways rightly so in horror edited collections and in horror um scholarship suddenly really have to be kind of removed from that because although in my opinion, it might be a little bit of a horrible film. Um, I wouldn't say it's horrifying me. It, even though it does have some trademark elements of the genre. and Werewolves, vampires. Sparkles. Yeah, oh. I mean, super important, super, right? Like, I, every that's my favorite part of it. every horror movie is when they all sparkle. As, as it should be, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so this really is complicated because then, like, so then you get people that are like, okay, well... It's going to be about the affect. It's about the intended response, not not the actual, like, does it oh. actually make you feel this way? It's did the film set it up to be that it wanted to create this affect so, but of then, But then there's, this is problematic because then this is asking you to read into what the filmmakers, the writers, directors, everyone involved, yes. what they all view yes. as the intended affect. But that's, what they intend is not always what right. happens. And so then you have to rely on other things like, okay, well, does it have a, a sort of familiar framework that fits the horror genre? And you're right. We have to be really incredibly careful with um, making any sort of assumptions about authorial intent. Because, you know, we oftentimes as scholars were like, you know, I feel as though the curtain was blue because he was depressed and this is a piece about depression. And then you find out that the author's like, no, I, I had blue curtains at home and it just was the first color that came to mind. Particularly with like low budget films yes. where they're just like, no, it was just because that was what we already kind of had yes. and we were ran out of money. Exactly. And so we had to make do with what we had. Or almost more like insidiously, someone will be like, you know, were the curtains blue because of this? And then because authors and filmmakers are storytellers, they're like, yes, Yes, it was. There are other things that you can see in here, too, right? Like, and they get that, like, long gaze, you know, and they're looking out the window. James Gunn does this a lot, and where he'll just be like, yeah, there's so many Easter eggs that you haven't yet discovered in my films. Go back and watch them, and let me know what you think are the Easter eggs I was doing. Exactly. So what happens, right, is that that we realize that we have this genre, and it's true for, I think, lots of genres. Lots of genres can be really difficult to categorize. Um, particularly, I would argue, anything that falls into speculative fiction, so fantasy, science fiction, and, and horror, mm-hmm. um, and magic realism and all that stuff. Um, but then what happens is that horror scholars say, well, okay, 
let's let's further nuance this. And we've talked about this before. How some scholars then say, you know, that that horror is ultimately disaffirmative. Um, that or, or horror affirmative. is ultimately affirmative. That horror allows us to um, have this cathartic experience. Or, or horror get, allows us to see into the cultural zeitgeist. Exactly. And it reflects a time period. And then we get into this really sort of terrible, like equivalent of uh, what Justice Potter Stewart said about pornography, which is, I know it when I see it. And on the one hand, I think that there's some absolute validity to that because I think that that's true. I know a good horror film or a bad horror film or just anything that's even trying to be a horror film. <laughs> I thought um, you were going to say, I know a good porn- good pornography versus bad pornography. <laughs> yeah, no. I thought I, I thought I would gently steer us back to our main discussion. Although there are people who probably would rather we know good pornography it's than good true. horror. It's true. Um, but yeah, no. Good or bad <laughs> horror. Um, when I see it, but the problem is, though, is that that's just it's too messy of a categorization. And part of me is just like, OK, that's OK. Right. Like not everything has to be neatly categorized. I've had lots of discussions slash arguments with mm-hmm. people about like it doesn't matter if we identify this text as, as science fiction or if we identify this text as horror. And a lot of those discussions were about Midsommar. Right. Like they were said, you know, I don't feel like it matters if it's a horror film or not. I just think of what matters is my response to it. But this is where I'm drawing my line in the sand. And this is where I begin to have, as you can tell, because my voice is getting louder, I begin to have some like of my fundamental thoughts about Midsommar. And it all has to do with the fact that generic classification does indeed matter it, very significantly. It's true. One of my friends who uh, watched this film uh, before I did, she was like, "You have you seen Midsommar yet? And I said, uh, no, not yet. I'm going to. And she's like, you have got to go out and see it. And I was like, well, uh, I was... I was talking about you. You had you had seen it before me, and you're like you had some problems with it. And you're like I can't I can't wait to talk about it with you because it do, you you had told me you don't know if it feels like it's real horror, and she responded, it doesn't matter what genre it is, it is art. Yeah. See, and again, like part of me wants to be like she's so right because and she is in so she, many I ways. Mean, yeah, that's a I mean that's like a pretty incredible way to skirt the question and skirt that at least that criticism of it to it be is. just like well i mean are you critiquing art for being too art for you right but then underneath that statement right is this idea that like art and i'm i'm using that with like capital, capital a, a right is above genre and i think there's also something kind of possibly flawed with that because can't something be clearly horror and also art capital a and so i think that again these are the issues that everyone, I think, who is a horror fan, whether or not that's on the most basic level mm-hmm. or on the I make a living, you know, talking about this level, I think that this is the conversation that everyone has. And I feel like for me, Midsommar brings it to the surface. And I know this was a film that people have lots of thoughts about. It's true. So Midsommar is a 2019 folk horror film written and directed by Ari Aster, who... Um, if you've listened to our episode on Hereditary, you already know that we have big, big feelings about his first film. So this film has been a long time in development. Began in the process for this film began in 2013, actually, with uh, Astor working closely with a Stockholm set director to help him understand the environment and culture that was foreign to him. He, they created a hundred-page story bible detailing every aspect of this movie's world. So. Uh, I guess just like uh, Jordan Peele says that there is answers everywhere in us, and he knows all of it. 
there's literally a story Bible for Aster that you could go to and yeah. you could point out every little thing in this world. And I really appreciate that because although I have some problems with how the foreigners are ultimately treated, I did feel at the same time like I knew that he had done his research. I, he did research not into just Swedish traditions, but Nordic, English, and Germanic folklore traditions. And he traveled to Sweden to observe the culture and traditions because... As the set director said, they wanted to try to get a grasp on how people in rural, religious Scandinavian communities lived, and they wanted to get a sense of how they communicated. It felt very authentic. It did. Um, and it felt authentic, I think, in a way that can only be that if you have immersed yourself through research and, and hopefully through experiential moments in um, a, a culture, or multiple cultures in this case. Yeah. So this film in particular stars Florence Pugh, Jack Reiner, William Jackson Harper, Vilmint Bulmagreen, and Will Poulter. Uh, this film actually ha was announced before Hereditary was even released yet. In uh, May of 2018, Deadline reported that A24, along with the Swedish production company Be Real, would be producing Astor's next film about a young woman who reluctantly joins her boyfriend on a summer trip where things <laughs> quickly go awry. <laughs> Which I think is a fairly good description for Midsommar. It's a very just like streamlined, you take out all of the nuances. Yes. Uh, yeah, that is technically what happened. So I mean, it sounds like it the overall structure didn't change much. Right. Uh, Aster has talked about the concept for the f uh, film, and in a June 2019 article for Variety, he says, About four years ago, I was actually brought a broad folk horror concept by the Swedish production company called Be Real. They pitched me an Americans going to Sweden and then getting killed off concept, which is extremely basic. And again, like we said, on a fundamental level kind of is what this film is. Yeah, I think if you were trying to have like no spoilers, but also not trying to pique people's interest to see the film, um, you could describe it as that and people would be like, oh yeah, that is a fairly accurate description. But Astor pushes back against this and he expanded on this idea and shifted the central focus from being Americans die from weird foreigners, which is a problematic concept, and one we will talk about later, to being about the couple's relationship, because at the time, he says, I was going through a breakup that was fresh. I saw a way of marrying the breakup movie with the full core subgenre and making it a big operatic movie. It became extremely personal to him. And I mean, you, he says that Pew's character is supposed to represent his real life experience with this breakup. And I think one of the, the best aspects of this film really is the human emotion that comes out from this relationship that mm -hmm. is broken from the moment we see it. And it's just about them acknowledging that it's broken. And, and I think that, again, this is one of those places where Aster is a real sort of master at his craft in that he understands how to tell basic human stories of loss it, so well. It, loss and grief yes. in particular, at, which is something that both this film and Hereditary do extremely yes. well. Aster, uh, in almost kind of a direct response to some people trying to categorize his film, s describes this film in an interview with The Atlantic as being adjacent to horror. I wouldn't call it a horror film. I think of it as a fairy tale with horror elements. And he has frequently described it, as I mentioned earlier, uh, as a breakup film, first and foremost. It is a breakup movie dressed in the clothes of a folk horror film. That's Vulture 2019. And I think 
if there's ever a lesson that we need to be learning by now, it's that we need to stop trying to force Aster to go into a box. Oh, that is true, because he will not go in the box. No, or he will, but the result will be the ending of Hereditary. It's true. They. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, so I think just, and I think, again, we go back to, like, this issue from that we began the the podcast episode on, and that is, like, classification. And Mm -hmm. you can see that he's resisting this, but he's also said um, elsewhere in interviews that he kind of likes having the framework of of genre. To play with. To play with. To be able to throw things on. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, you know, like a skeleton. Mm -hmm. Excellent. (laughs) Um, Yeah, thank you so much. So I, I just think there's, like, when even the filmmakers are finding this framework and this categorization problematic, it's we have to pause and we have to think about what that means. We do. We definitely do. And a lot of people are still thinking about this film and still trying to process it. Uh, when it was released uh, theatrically in the U.S. on July 3rd, 2019, it opened to pretty pretty good reviews. Uh, Not incredible. Rotten Tomatoes gave it an 83% from critics. Metacritic has it at a 73%. Uh, The audience is a little less enthusiastic, but not, it's not as, their reaction was not as intense to this film as it was to Hereditary. Rotten Tomatoes score is 62% and the Metacritic score is a 6.2, so identical. And Aster has improved his cinema score from being in the D's, now he's at a C+. Ooh. Yeah, I know. He gets to wear his big boy filmmaker That's pants. Right. Now the audiences Excellent. like them. And uh, Midsummer made $36 million worldwide against a single digit production budget, which wow. is, eh, that's pretty good. You know, so the thing I think that's interesting about Midsummer, that was our transition, by the way. Good um, transition. Thank you very, so very much. Good. Is that seeing it in, in the audience, or seeing it in the theater, the audience, I felt was not quite what I had anticipated the audience to be because I I knew as an A24 film and I knew as an Astro film Mm -hmm. that this was going to be a little bit more um, art house sort of feel than than not. But, and I think we've talked about this before, and if not, we'll happily talk about it for quite a bit. Um, Anthony has brought to my attention the fact that A24... Mm may or may not be the most effective at properly advertising and where their film should fall in terms of the audience it should gain. They often will recut their trailers to be more mainstream. Yes. But their films are decidedly anything but mainstream. I mean, they are far more in line with older Hollywood sensibility, particularly in terms of pacing. Yes. The A24 makes slow films. Yes. Particularly for horror films, which are usually very brisk, hour 30 minutes, you're in, you're out, you get your jump scares, you go home. Yes. A24 doesn't do that. No, it doesn't, but it markets itself as though it does. And so for me, the audience was that sort of what you think of when you think of the traditional horror movie audience, so that like 20 to 35 male, primarily heterosexual male Mm -hmm. uh, audience. And... I think that part of my problem with the film really stems from the fact that that was the audience watching it and they were watching it with very specific expectations about what should come out in a horror film. And those expectations are not fully met at all in, in Midsommar. And so then they were left, I think, having to to make things fit. Fill in the blanks. Yes. Like, draw connections where perhaps connections weren't. Yes. 
or be disturbed by things that while they're disturbing, the reason they were afraid of them might be different, right? And we'll get into all of this, but I think that the audience um, and the audience that was sort of trained by the trailer to, to be excited by this film was maybe not the audience that was going to fully appreciate and enjoy the film because that's not their cup of tea. Mm-hmm. This is a film that you've actually had quite like a relationship with, I feel like, in terms of like emotional response. It's true. It's been an intense struggle with me in this film. We've gone through an emotional roller coaster together. Yeah, because I, I, when I saw it, I was like, Anthony is going to be delighted by this film. I, mean, this I, film I thought like, I was going to be delighted yeah. by this film. This looks like exactly the type of like artsy nonsense that I would eat right up. We saw the trailer together and like you were just like, yeah, and I was like, oh gosh. (laughs) Um, So I went and saw it and I was like, oh, I actually really like this, but I I feel like Anthony's gonna like it. But then you're, the first time you watched it. First time I watched it, I was like, it's good. I was expecting something different though. I, I think I was expecting the, okay, so the film is very streamlined. It's it's that plot description that they give of Americans go to Sweden and they experience the culture and then they are gradually killed off is re- pretty much exactly what happens. And the big twist, which is not really a twist because it's all. so forecast, is that Florence Pugh's character, Danny, uh, is eventually sacrifices her boyfriend. But you see this coming from miles away. I mean... Two hours away, I you mean, see exactly you what, see what's happening. You see it play out on a tapestry. Like, exactly. I mean, it just, it, if, you know, if ever there's a movie where, like, I wonder what's going to happen next, this should not have been that movie. And so I was like, oh, oh, I, they're, they're giving us all these signs. This is what they want us to think is coming, but there's going to be something bigger. I was like, is it going to be, like, Cabin in the Woods style? They're just going to pull the, the rug out from under us, and we're going to be dropped into something we don't expect. But no, it was very... Very streamlined. Yes. Exactly what you think is going to happen happens pretty much as you think it should happen. The first time I saw it, I saw that as a negative. I was like, predictability, bad. I was expecting more. Because we've been taught that that originality means unpredictable. It's true. I think that might be a whole, like issue systematically speaking that we should talk about but you're absolutely correct that we especially in the horror genre right where like you know there's only five or six options for storylines um we've been taught that the the only way to be a good quote good horror film is to do something that's just going to be unprecedented so i went i saw the film less than enthused i i liked it it was fine or whatever but then when i went back and i saw it again all this, all of my problems with it about the predictability just didn't matter to me because the story affected me at a very like visceral level. The grief that Danny feels, this breakup, the intensity of it, and just how well everything is executed pretty much across the board for me. I, I just it was like, you know what? No. It doesn't matter that it's predictable. That actually is a benefit. You know exactly what's going to happen, so you just get to appreciate the journey. This film is not about, it's like so many things, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And this was a journey that, particularly on the second time around, I was enthused to be taking. And I think, you know, if you think back 
to Hereditary, part of our problem with that film was that it did go unpredictable. It did. Um, and, and I think where Aster has found his sweet spot really is his, his awareness that, like, we all experience grief. Yeah. Grief leads us almost always to the same destination. And yet, for each one of us, it feels so personalized and so unique. And so even though we're all like, yeah, I got over my grief. Oh, yeah, me too, right? Like, nobody's surprised by that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still that sort of, like, uniqueness. And I think that this may actually be one of the, like, real strengths of this film is that it takes something that's very predictable and yet shows us how authentic, how real, how profound it can feel nevertheless. Yeah, I think that's quite true. And, I mean, the film tells you it's going to be about grief and heartbreak right off the start where it has this... I mean, a master class in acting from Florence Pugh. She's fantastic. She has to, she effectively communicates all of these struggles that she's been having with her boyfriend, and then she learns about what looks like, what, and then she learns about the death of her parents and her sister. And we have that tracking shot through her parents' house, um, where we see that, you know, her sister has has killed her parents and committed suicide with all the gas from the vehicle. And then, and then Pew, one of the things that the Aster is capable of getting out of his his actresses and actors um, is these performances that honestly, even just thinking about them, give me goosebumps. And he has this motif that he uses of women crying and rocking. Yes. And without words, you know exactly how they're feeling. Whether or not you have ever experienced grief at this level, Mm -hmm. you know. Yes. You know someone who has, or you know that feeling. Yes. And, and his ability to to capture the fact that these are things that we feel emotionally, but also physiologically, mm-hmm. it's just, it's profound. It's honestly a profound thing that I wish more directors had the ability to do, and I wish that more actors and actresses had the ability to do. And I mean, it does make for a grueling shoot. I mean, as Pew described to GQ, that making this film was self-abuse in some way, and I mean, I I think you see that communicated beautifully, if uh, albeit heartbreaking, and I imagine extremely intense for her. And and we hear this often um, by especially people who are in movies that are very intense or also very horrific. Um, Liv Tyler said that The Strangers was very rough for her. Mm -hmm. Evan Peters has said that he's going to have to take breaks occasionally from an American Horror Story because he doesn't like who he is after coming out of those. Bill Skarsgård hates horror. He does not like doing Pennywise in it because it just freaks him out so much. Yeah, so, you know, this is this is something that I think is really an intriguing sort of aspect of the genre. And I think Pew is very right. It's not only an act of self-abuse for her. I think in some ways it's an act of self-abuse for us, the audience, because mm-hmm. we're forced to be in a situation that is more intimate than I think we should ever be with anyone let alone a quote stranger and everyone in this cast is phenomenal i think everyone does a really good job across the board uh jack rayner i think does a fantastic job of managing to be someone that you just hate what an absolute scumbag i know and you're like please stop i mean like and you're like okay not only is he a jerk to his girlfriend he's a jerk to his friends like i mean and like the whole time i was watching the movie i was like i don't remember the last time I hated someone so fully, I, actually I do, it was Joffrey in Game of Thrones. Mm. Um, but like, he just, you just want to smack him and then like smack him a couple more times. And some of that is because of the relationship um, that 
we see, but some of it's because I think one of the film things this film does really well is it kind of shows the toxicity that is at the heart of a lot of doctoral programs. And also, I think that, that it, it makes the relationship feel very real because we all know relationships that should have ended. Yes. And it's not necessarily his fault alone no, that this relationship not. has gone to such a toxic place. He's clearly tried to get out of it, but Florence Pugh has some account of, her character has some amount of accountability yes. for the amount of emotional baggage she brings. Yes. And I mean, that's communicated early on in the film in that first scene where they're talking about the anxiety and the amount of things she needs, but she's not always communicating that directly to him. Now, is he still a scumbag? Yeah. Absolutely. But their relationship problems are not, are clearly not all on him. You're and right. I think that's one of the really, that's a very interesting nuance that this yes. film is able to get and is why the catharsis at the end is able to feel so powerful. And I think it's not just that dynamic, it's all of them. You know, mm -hmm. he does such a good job of showing that there is no good guy or bad guy, that, that it's always much more complicated, right? It's true. And yes, there are victims, and yes, Danny is a victim, um, but she also admits that she's kind of emotionally blackmailing him at times. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the relationships with between the male characters, um, you know, they're friends, but they're also not, they're not good friends to each other, and they're backstabbing. And again, I think some of this is, is talking about why academia... Um, especially when you're working on your PhD program, you cease to be a, a good human a little <laughs> bit. Like, even if you just become a sad human, you cease to be a good human. I'm like, all of that's kind of, like, compounded in here to show us that, for the Americans especially, everything is nuanced, everything is complex, because people are nuanced, people mm -hmm. are complex. So some other things that we'll just kind of quickly... Uh, fly through that are really good uh, cinematography it's the same cinematographer that Ari Aster uses yes. in uh, Hereditary the cinematographer is incredible uh, should win all of the awards for everything that they're able to do uh, with this even just simple shots that should are ba are basically nothing just filler look beautiful due to how they frame them yes and they use that his Ari Aster classic around the world shot to yep. show that the everything from this point on once they're entering this Swedish community is going to be in a different world the world turns upside yes. down we have some lovely transitional shots such mm. as when um, they're descending in the plane into Sweden and there's the moment of turbulence like that's just a nice like transitional move and there's just lots of shots those. of Danny crying in one location she goes through a door bada bing she's in a new location yeah. it's cinematography incredible production design I mean he Astor talks about that hundred page story bible I mean and just the amount of work he did with the set designer it shows yes it does and, and again, we've never had a problem with Aster as filmmaker. It's 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 Aster as storyteller that we've had a bit of a problem with, um, with Hereditary at least. So you're you're absolutely correct, and I agree. I think it should win awards, and I think should it, win. it should win all the awards for cinematography, production design, and I, Florence Pugh makes a very oh. very good case for why she should be considered. I hundred percent. <laughs> so. You're probably wondering, dear listeners, you're like, okay, but you said you weren't in agreement. It sure sounds like you're in an awful lot and of I'm, agreement. And I'm okay with ending the podcast here, and we can just leave it on no. a pretty positive note about Mid Midsommar. No. <laughs> now is where two shall enter, but only one shall leave. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I, oh, I hope 
I hope that's not a trademark. No, it's I can do it because I made it with my yeah. mouth, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I think okay, it's super good, okay. good, good. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone cares what sounds we make in our <laughs> podcast. So, I, I agree. I agree with everything that you've said. But here's where I have to again draw that line in the sand. I think this is a great coming of age narrative. Yep, that just we're happens in agreement. to have a little bit of death, right? Like. Oh, a little nice. bit of death, because, yeah. I mean, the, the something that's interesting about the deaths in this film is that, besides those initial deaths right at the top of her parents and sister, the next death happens after an hour into the film, then there's another 30 minutes later, and then it's just, they're very sparse. The yeah. death is sparse in this film. It is, and it's not super graphic. I mean, well, well some of it some is. Well, some of it is. But some of it's not, right? Like, I mean, it kind of, like, runs the gamut. But I think if you say, this is a coming-of-age narrative mm-hmm. about a woman who realizes that the American system of, of sort of isolating families is toxic and that it is acceptable to find a new definition of family. And if that family is still slightly odd and if that family is still slightly, um, you know, killy of people, <laughs> that's okay because you're at the end, you have found happiness again. Mm-hmm. If that is the genre that we're going to put it into coming of age, I have no problem at all with this film. If, however, you categorize it as horror, I think that the film becomes awful. And uh, so this is where I, I must push back. I think it is a discredit to not think of this film as anything but that coming of age first. I mean, Astor says it's horror second. And I think it is that coming of age breakup narrative that is front and foremost and this finding of a family in, albeit somewhat odd situation that is the thing that drives this film and it's what this film is ultimately about but i don't think it's enough that that's what he wants us to categorize it as because people only talk to me about this film once they know that i'm a horror scholar nobody just says you know like hey by the way i saw some interesting films this weekend i saw lawrence of arabia (laughs) and i saw midsummer thoughts right like it's only when i'm like you know it chapter two and they're like speaking of horror films have you seen midsummer and you can't, you cannot do that without, I think, both destroying the beauty that is his film, but also giving us everything that is sort of wrong and broken with the horror genre. So, so. before I begin to respond, uh-huh. I will go go a little bit deeper into what I into what you're talking about yeah, with the problem. I will most certainly do that. Okay, so here's the thing. As a coming of an age narrative, it's very inclusive. It's, I mean, yes, people again don't make it, but it's very inclusive. And at the end, we realize that there are other frameworks that work besides the traditional American version, which for um, Danny's character, at least, proved to not be effective, right? Mm-hmm. She needed to have that community. She needed to have that sense of commune that that we just don't embrace in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And there are, like, documentaries, like, happiness, that, like, look at the fact that the, some of the happiest people are, are in, in the commune. Yeah. They- because they, they have a shared experience, and so lovely, lovely, lovely. If we look at it as a horror film, though, horror films, if we go back to this horrible definition, um, <laughs> that was not intentional, um, are intended to horrify, right? Like, that's their, that's their job. So then we have to ask ourselves, if this is a horror film, even if it's a, a secondary horror film, what are the things that are supposed to be the sources of horror? And here is where I think we run into um, this really sort of, like, not include not only not inclusive but actually um very fundamentally xenophobic approach to two things because 
what are we supposed to be scared of in this film if it's a horror film? I think one of the things we're supposed to be scared of is the character in the community who is um, mentally handicapped mm-hmm. because there are a number of shots of him um, that are close-up shots on his face that we don't have those same close-ups of any other character and it's like oh no he looks different he has different thoughts how scary again if it's a coming-of-age narrative though it's um oh look they happen to really celebrate and like promote this person and he gets his own like fluffy cloud and everything right like so again it's, it's that like how we see these things and i have like several more but i know you want to say something yes I think that there is another framework that we can look at this under for what we are supposed to be afraid of besides xenophobic tendencies. Okay. I would actually postulate that this film forces you uh, to look at it as a cult film. And if you are going to be afraid of anything else, which you are, he says it is in part a horror movie, the thing that he actually wants you to be afraid of is this cult and this personality behind that. There are lines of dialogue that are actually specifically referencing the Waco cult, which draw our attention to that as a prominent source of horror throughout the film. I like that, and I do agree that there is absolutely this cult-like nature to the group and to having these anthropologists studying it, you know, and being like, well, can we really judge them? I just find a problem with this idea that the cult becomes everything that is not the American way. And I know that cults tend to be really, like... Insular. Yes. But it's also the cult is foreign. And I don't know. There's just something about that that doesn't quite work for me. But I think that the bringing back to the American reference with Waco and then having uh, these Americans, particularly Danny, be able to be so quickly assimilated into it shows that it's really not the foreign tendencies that people are supposed to be most afraid of, but it's any type of cult mentality that they don't quite understand. And there are certainly a number of other things in this film that seem to to problematically be sources of horror in no particular order. The rape scene, the Mm. where um, we have the virgin red haired girl who drugs the boyfriend. And then there's the unnecessary gyrating naked female bodies. And Mm -hmm. this is, I'm sure it was true for when you saw it. There was laughter. There's laughter, right? And there's just always laughter um, anytime there's naked women that are not beautiful, which becomes an issue, right? Because then the film is saying, oh no, you know what's really scary (laughs) is the female body that's not beautiful. So the grotesque female body. Do you know what else is really scary? Female sexuality and empowerment. Oh no. Um, And yeah, it's gross. Like nobody wants to think about like, you know, how did you two meet? Well, she put a pubic hair in my drink and we fell in love. Like, that's not that's not a story no one wants to have told. But if it's a horror movie, we're supposed to be scared of that. If it's not a horror movie, then it's like, this is not right. Um, but this is how they do it. And so I, but I, and I think that that is what the film says out, outright. I mean, it's pretty explicit in that. I mean, Kristen's character uh, t- says in an actual line of dialogue, it's cultural. They find it disturbing that we stick our elders in nursing homes. And so I think with lines like that, and there are others that are sprinkled throughout there, I believe that these Americans are the ones who, they're kind of being satirized for their closed-minded, one-track view of what is right. Their morals are their front and front and center. I'm using quote marks with my little fingers here to... Normal size fingers. Normal size fingers here to 
express that that is obviously a joke. The morals that they present are clearly also not great. I mean, they backstab. These Americans are arguably just as bad, if not worse, oh, I agree. than the Swedish commune that they are living amongst. I agree. And as a coming-of-age narrative, we can we can have that be how the film can be read. And we can have it be a satirical look at the fact that, like, maybe all systems are broken because all systems have humans. Like, you can do that in a coming-of-age narrative. But again, if a horror movie is intended to horrify for an American audience, which this is going to first and foremost be for that, we are going to relate with the Americans, and the Americans are being systematically terrorized by this other, by this non-American other. The, the film itself complicates that by the ending with, uh, with Danny there. And if this were a film in which we were supposed to be really afraid of this other and be really just kind of disgusted by them and by what the, all of they're doing here, then I just don't understand. Then the film's ending doesn't make a lot of sense in this context because it ends with this very, I would argue, c- extremely cathartic moment where Danny finally is free. She ends, she's covered in flowers, she's smiling. Sure, there is something horrific and disturbing. She's sure. burning her boyfriend alive. Sure. Which is... Uh, he's ex at that point. He's an ex at that point. So I mean, okay. sure, it's a little bit of unorthodox. It's unorthodox. I mean, I've never burned any of my exes in a bear costume uh, in Sweden. But I mean, you know what? Teach their own. But she's there and she is smiling. And then as right as it goes black, really happy, uplifting music And she's seen her parents, she's and she's a, it's, being embraced. There's something really interesting in this film about, like, the group embrace. Yeah, and um, they, uh, before this, a one of the members of the commune says, now you are a part of this family, and it's a really sweet, tender moment there. She's being brought in, so she's now a part of this family. It's very beautiful, I would argue. Not horrific. Okay, I agree, but only if we acknowledge this film as not a horror film, because here's the the truth of the matter, you're correct, that the ending remains the same, right, like, in terms of, like, the camera work tries to create this sort of beautific moment, Um, Pew's performance seems to be really positive, it's been bright the entire film, but it's super bright because she's got that, like, flower dress garment thing on Mm -hmm. so you're right that that regardless of whether or not we read this film as a coming of age or a horror film the ending stays visually and and in terms of cinematography and performance bright right Mm -hmm. however um somebody was telling me the other day that they watched this interview with tom hanks uh and he was talking about how some of the best acting advice that he was ever given was to say the phrase coffee coffee sir may i have some more coffee and first to deliver it just straight and then to deliver it those exact same words but now you are desperate to deliver it and now you're angry right and and the whole point is is that it's not just the words that matter it's it's everything else Mm -hmm. and i think that it is possible to say something similar about the conclusion of the film that you can have something that is exactly the same this beautific um and sort of like idealized moment that is presented to us but it only gets to be beautiful for us the audience if we see it as a coming of age narrative otherwise it becomes scary right like oh no she has been so traumatized by the system that it's almost like we have to if it's a horror movie view this as like the ultimate moment of horror because she doesn't even know anymore that she's a victim and again you can't 
do that without saying that anything that's not American, anything that's not familiar, anything that's not, quote, normal, um, is... But you view this as a coming-of-age story. But this isn't how the film is being most frequently discussed. And I would attribute a lot of that to A24's marketing of the film, which is, yet again, I've... We mentioned it in this podcast, and I, I will continue to mention it until A24 fixes how they market their films. They've got to know what they're marketing. They have, an, a, I, I would say, a, an incredible coming-of-age story that is a little bit uh, disturbed, has those elements of horror, but it is front and center. It's a breakup movie, like Aster says. It it's all about the grief, the loss, the intensity of this relationship, and the acceptance of a new family. And I think both of us would probably agree that that's what we've come, that's how we view the film. Yes. And I I guess, you know, like, so then it's like, but does it matter, right? Like, does anything I'm saying matter? Because I can still appreciate it as a coming-of-age movie. You can still appreciate it as a coming-of-age movie. So does it matter if other people think it's horror? And I think the answer is that it does, though. Because not just because I've heard people say that they think um, Aster is today's like, most significant horror director, independent I, yeah, of that, right? he gets compared to Alfred Hitchcock yeah. all the time. And, and that's, like, who, I mean, who cares about who that? Cares? Whatever. Here's the real issue. If it's a horror film, it is only encouraging us, as this reflection of our social conscious, to continue to be afraid of the things that it is time to move past being afraid of. It is a film that people are watching and saying, ooh, this is a scary movie. And people are going, oh, yeah, it was scary how the women had, you know, like, power over their lives and sex and how she gets sucked into this, like, cult-like thing. Like, it, we can't let people but continue can't horror, to serve that source. Can't horror evolve over t- Shouldn't it be allowed to evolve yes. and use other things in order to effectively talk about these things that are so problematic and operate on multiple levels like this film because the last thing we would want to do is have a film like we said we don't want to put Aster in a box you don't like him you like baby you don't want to put him in a corner you don't want to put Aster in a box (laughs) you don't want to put horror in a box because then it becomes extremely checklisty it does jump scares okay good disgusting person very good all right all right everybody's dead very good we've got a horror film that's very boring. I agree. I, I definitely agree. And I think that you're right. Horror should be complex. Horror should be allowed to do all these things. I think where I have a problem is not that this film couldn't be listed as horror, but that if it's listed as horror, it's not doing all the great things. I think that if it's list in this particular case, if it's listed as horror because of the specific camera angles that are used, um, that that really sort of objectify um, the other, because of the familiarity of the formula of the American abroad and how scary it is, um, all the things that make for a really intriguing sense of horror, like what if our system is so broken that we all can't function? What if like, it's all? What if it's all the system and these values that we have are all a construct because yes. everything's a construct. Yes. And once you just admit that and find a construct that you're happy with, everything will be much more in life. You'll be more free. I just don't think that the film, in terms of how it's actually presented to us, allows us to focus on what should be the really intriguing and valuable and sort of new approaches to horror. I think that in terms of the horror, it just, it is actually checking 
this list of like, um, do I have some scary images of female gyrating bodies? Yes, I do. Do I have some? And I feel like he's better than that. First off, Aster is better than that. But second, this film is better than that. And so I think that it could have been a really rich horror film and coming of age narrative at the same time, but that it just cannot work without destroying it. And I will be interested to see how this film ages because if Aster is this type of Hitchcockian figure who forever reshapes the horror genre, which I don't know if that's true. Yeah. This is his second full film yeah. that he's ever made as of us recording this podcast right. right now. So I don't know, but I think it will be interesting how this film is viewed. And I mean, it's clearly, it's one that's made an impression on both of us. Good for me, not as good for you. Right. Um, but I think it will be interesting to see how this film ages and Absolutely. what people are saying about it when we, in regard to horror films that do come. Yes. Because I think that it is able to successfully balance both of them without succumbing to just hor horrific tropes and this bad version of the other and everything. And I think that it raises interesting questions about what qualifies as horror and it raises interesting questions about the possibility that horror doesn't have to be derivative and that it can be a beautiful creation and in its own I right. would like to hope that the audience who saw this film thinks about that type of stuff. They are thinking and I would perhaps we're not giving the audience enough credit here for being able to think and oh, be able to bring up these types of questions. I think you're right that it sounds like we're not but in reality I think it's 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 not it's almost independent of how the audience responds because I know lots of intelligent people have had lots of intelligent thoughts about this film. It's the fact that the film codes and uses the vocabulary of horror in such a way that is problematic so that even if you can be like, but you know what, I recognize this, but here's all the good things, I just still feel like the film has set us up to accept it in problematic ways. So there we are in our agreement and disagreement which is weirdly sometimes the same and yet different. Yeah. So the midsummer of, of discussions. It's true. It's true. Incredibly divisive. Definitely something you won't forget. Yes. But still worth engaging with. Uh, yeah, I would. I would agree that that's ultimately where where we both come on, come down on this film. Is that is it? It is very interesting. It has problems. But that does not discount that you should watch this film, have opinions about it for yourself. Yes. And think about it. Yay. And so we end our podcast back as friends. <laughs> no longer the Hulks. Two entered, two left. It was not quite the death no. match. No, no one died. And no one died in the making of this podcast. Excellent. And we're very excited for our next episode. Yes. Which is... 2019's Pet Cemetery, a remake of the original Pet Cemetery film, which was, of course, based on Stephen King's book version. Yes, and we're very excited because we're going to come back to this idea of formulas um, and the horror formula because I think that this is something that deserves to be unpacked just a little bit more. Uh, so, thank you for joining us today. Be sure to Give us a like, share us with your real life friends. Yes. Talk us up uh, and uh, be sure to come back and join us next time. 